Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 158, recorded on August 14th of 2021. I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, to geek out about the photo news of the week, as we do just about every week on this very podcast. Uh, I pick the stories, probably some of the stuff that might fly under the radar, but obviously if there's big announcements or controversy in the photo space, we tend to cover it. Uh, and I get to uh, sort of dissect and explore and opine on said stories with my guest host. And the guest host that I have on this episode is no stranger to the format, has been on before, but also hosts his own podcasts, plural. Um, with me today <laughs> is uh, Jeff Harmon. Uh, Jeff, uh, how are you? Uh, doing doing well. Super, super busy over the last several months. I've uh, taken on a project I didn't intend to, <laughs> and uh, and it's grown legs. So um, so I'm I'm been distracted away from my podcast for a little bit, but I they will be I will be returning to that pretty soon. And I, I can understand and relate to exactly what what you're talking about. I mean, I don't know what project you're referring to, but I think anybody in an entrepreneurial or creative space takes on a project and thinks, yeah, this will be simple. I'll be, I'll be through it in a week. Uh, and then two months later, uh, you're maybe 80% of the way where you want it to be after about a week. And it's just, it's not gelling together like you thought. And, uh, you're wondering now where the budget is going to come from, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So it's, it's actually a personal project. Uh, this will makes it worse because it's my own fault. <laughs> and, and what I, I'm building a, uh, a testing framework, to do testing of Lightroom across platforms. And because um, nothing like that exists, at least at a reasonable cost. I, there are tools out there, but they're they're made for like corporations to buy, and that's not me. So <laughs> so I'm building something that's going to to help me to do a whole bunch of uh, testing. I like to be able to do provide information to my listeners and my shows about like what hardware actually matters for Lightroom, uh, evaluating of releases of Lightroom, stuff like that. So uh, some um, of that information is really valuable. Like how many cores do you actually need? Right. You know, do you have any advantage? You know, if you're trying to eye up a processor that has eight cores versus 12 or 16, um, Lightroom, and this is just my hypothesis here, probably doesn't utilize more than eight probably less than that. Um, and then it's core clock speed that makes the difference. Right. But you also have issues with memory or the graphics integration and, and how all of those different components feed together and whether or not you have a static platform, uh, you know, very similar hardware on a uh, Windows machine versus a Mac, right. uh, or heck, even Linux. I mean, if you're running it in Wine, if you can even do that anymore, because there's so many layers of complexity these days. Yep, yep. So I'm I'm building some tests because um, there's so many things I want to to test well, and I've been doing it for several years now, just kind of manually and making my own observations and recording like resource utilization statistics and so on. But but it's not very repeatable. It's not very scientific. It's I can draw some conclusions for sure, but I really want a uh, higher level, uh, higher quality of information to be able to share. And so I've, I've d uh, gone down the rabbit hole and I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot, but it means the, the time I normally spend doing podcasting, I've been allocating to building this tool. So. Uh, yeah, I hear a hint of regret in your voice. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but no, that, that's cool. And, and I think that everybody will benefit uh, as a result of that. I, I'm assuming that, are you testing Lightroom or Lightroom Classic or both? Classic will be the focus. Um, the tool can apply to anything that runs on a desktop. So I'll, I'll be able to use it for anything that I'd want to test. But a, a lot of these tools 
the only way to use them and try to test them in an automated way is through the UI still. There's not keyboard shortcuts to every single function feature thing, even buttons. There's there's some buttons in the in the UIs that are only accessible via the UI and not a keyboard. So you, you have to have something that can look at the, the the screen itself and record things from the screen and compare images. And and it's been very, very interesting. I've, I've found a couple of Lightroom Classic bugs already just by by building my tool. So you, you do not have my envy, sir. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would not want to be doing that, but I'm glad that somebody is. And I'm glad that that's a person that I can personally phone up and say, hey, have you tried this edge case scenario? Right. And, um, and then you probably haven't. And then I just give you more work to do. That's right. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, uh, Jeff, thank you very much for being, uh, on, on the show. Um, is there anything, uh, you know, uh, just as a general beginning banter that you've been up to besides your Lightroom, uh, shenanigans? Well, football season here in the U S American football is just starting up in high school. So I'm, uh, I've been doing that too (laughs) and going to the games and getting shots. It was so fun. I had a game just last night as we're recording and and uh, I love doing it. It's such a challenging situation with the light being so low and the the action being so fast and shutter speeds needing to be so high. It's it's really really fun to to like stretch your limits as a photographer, your skill as a photographer, as well as the equipment, and see see how it does. It's, it's really yeah, fun. and and you can do that in landscape photography. You can oh, do yeah. that in street photography. I mean, those same variables apply across different genres. And developing skills in one area can translate to others as well. It's Absolutely. not like it's it's just a a singular vertical that you're climbing. You can uh, transpose those skills, and so that's always nice too. Um, something that's not as easily transposable is, uh, printing skills, which I've been doing this past week. Uh, it's an art form in and of itself, right? To, to take a, an image that looks great to your eyes. You know, if you're standing in front of a beautiful scene and then you take the picture and then you process it to be beautiful on your screen and then to translate, uh, transmitted light imagery into reflected light imagery when you make a print of it. Um, so I've been doing prints for, uh, the, uh, the orders of, uh, that were placed during my Kickstarter campaign for my book of the cover shot essence of reverie. And, uh, so this past week, I've got a whole bunch of prints that are fine tuned and, and a bunch of tests, no matter how well calibrated things are, it's all dependent on how the light shines <laughs> on that particular type of media and so on. Um, so the tests are out of the way, the prints are, uh, are underway, but, you know, it's, it's difficult, especially during this uh, still ensuing pandemic era. I don't get a lot of call for prints. Um, I do have some, and, and it's always nice when they come. But if my printer lays stagnant for a couple of weeks, or I think at most uh, two months went by, and that was the most recent um, uh, sort of dry spell, and I should know better. I should just fire it up and print some family photos to just <laughs> right. keep the stuff moving once in a while. But time escapes you. And, and so then you turn it on and the, uh, the print heads need to clean themselves and clean themselves and it's wasting ink. And oh, now it can't clean itself. So you got to replace the print head. And they're not cheap on an IPF 8400. That's a Canon image prograph printer. I believe the print heads are somewhere around $500 Canadian. Uh, and so you replace that. It's got to drain out all the ink and refill it. And by doing that, oh, your maintenance cartridge is now full. And so you've got to replace that. Thankfully, I had some spares on hand. But it's really frustrating because you know that at least some of that could have been fixed with some just preventative activity. Right. Um, but it's my fault. And so I have my regrets as well. Uh, but moving forward, I'm looking forward to, to getting... Hey, but before I uh, get into the, the stories, 
just one heads up, and I just saw this earlier today, um, my new macro photography book, um, if you don't have a copy yet, and if you're listening to this podcast, uh, I don't know what's stopping you. But uh, I just noticed today, uh, it's listed as the number one best selling book on B&H photo. So it is in the top spot on B&H. And uh, thank you to anybody that's been buying copies there. They just put in another purchase order and I've shipped them another round of books. They'll probably be getting them in a couple of days after we record this podcast. So congratulations on that, Don. It's, I love my copy. It's uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, I, you did an amazing job with, with that book. So congratulations. <laughs> thank you, Jeff. And you know, it, it's, it's one thing when uh, I hear from people like you that are as equally geeky as me say you did a good job. That's great. Um, but uh, I think that the general public has, has received it pretty well, especially at the as those sales continue to, to increase. And that will give me more time to be creative and pick up the camera more often. And I've been posting a whole bunch of images on social media over the last week or two, uh, just to catch up on a backlog of things. And the interaction has been wonderful. I've missed it. It's given me some creative energy. Um, so with that creative energy, I've got that in my voice today. Let's dig into the stories of the week. We've got four stories this week and our picks of the week after that. Story number one, it's not new to me per se. The concept is uh, is an old one, but it's it's interesting how it's been brought into uh, into light today. Uh, reported from DP Review, Canon publishes a microsite uh, of how many hundreds do they have now? But right. <laughs> um, to to bring awareness to counterfeit gray market Canon products. Now, I think that there should be a delineation between counterfeit and gray market. Yeah. Um, a gray market product is something that is taken in from a different region that might actually have lower uh, manufacturer suggested retail prices or lower taxes in that particular region and brought to a different region where the warranty doesn't apply, but otherwise it's pretty well just as good as the original. But... If you are buying a gray market product, you're not following the proper supply channels. Uh, and therein lies the rub, where it might not be a genuine product that you're buying. And this is applied, uh, what I've known in the past, batteries. That was a big one, right? People can counterfeit a battery by just making it look identical, put the right label on it. And uh, if you're not really savvy about those things, it's easy to mistake that, especially when you're buying from marketplace websites such as eBay or Amazon, they might not be coming from an authorized retailer, or even if they are, and I've had this happen before too, uh, the authorized retailer got duped and they were selling the counterfeit product unbeknownst to them because it was a really good knockoff. Um, there was a, a questionnaire on, on this website, and I'm sure you've done your reading, Jeff. What do you think about the whole counterfeit marketplace? And is Canon going to open any eyes by producing this microsite? See, th this is a point where I, I always go back to this um, in, in a lot of technical topics. As I try to discuss things with my wife occasionally, a lot of times, or, or she runs into something and she, she gets like paralyzed now trying to buy something online for this very reason. Like it's not exclusive to photography equipment that you face this challenge anywhere that you're shopping online. Fashion. Even, yeah. Right? Whatever it is. So she always wants, she, she, before she'll buy anything, she always wants me to come and look at it just as a second set of eyes to take a look. And, and then with electronics, she refuses. Like she won't even buy it. Like, <laughs> nope, you got to do that because I have no idea. And uh, it, often she'll say, like, what's a normal person supposed to do in these in these situations? Unless you are uh, really geeky and technical, it's really, really hard. Even then, it, like I looking at the images that they have, the comparisons and these counterfeits, boy, they are similar. 
And if, yeah, if you, you didn't have a high magnification view of some of these, like right. if you're just looking at one of these batteries with your own eyes, it's like, yeah, it looks the same. And, and but, they, they don't they don't stay the same over the lifetime of the product either. Like the the manuf- the real manufacturer will change the things up, so it's not necessarily going to be obvious, even if you have a reference image to go from. They could have changed something, and it's still it, it, the, the the real product does have a difference. It's it's a very challenging situation. Um, yeah, so so just trying to look out for some indicators somehow uh, you know english mistakes is a, <laughs> a pretty good one to try to look for uh obvious like the printing on the the labels but then again online they could just go grab an image from a real device and put it up there on their sale and say there's an image of the thing and then when you get it it's it's not that yeah so it, it's really rough it it's becoming a, a very very difficult thing and i i think uh going to some of the retailers that maybe put a little more eyes on it like the bnh you, you mentioned them already they they have uh, a little bit different approach than the big big retailers like amazon who can't possibly go through and, and validate all of these things and so there's maybe a little more safety in trying to go to a slightly smaller place and uh, and placing your orders there. What, what do you think, Don? What what do the photographers do for protection here? Yeah, I, I think for for some of the common items like um, even ink for your printer, right? That's a commonly counterfeited thing oh, yeah. as well. And for the average office printer, you know, a black ink, ink cartridge, so long as it doesn't break the printer, the counterfeit might be okay, right? right, right. Um, but with camera batteries, for example, uh, they might work great right away, but then they'll lose their gusto in maybe right. a couple of months, you know, a dozen charges go by and it's now nowhere near what it's supposed to be. Or burst into uh, flames. Or, yeah, exactly. And so that, that <laughs> stuff can cause harm too. Um, but, you know, I look at some of the things and I encourage people to check out uh, the Canon microsite because there's counterfeit items that I didn't expect yeah. to be counterfeitable. Um, you know, in a stretch, it's not that hard to imagine that a battery grip could be a counterfeit item because there's not a whole lot of electronics. Yes, there's buttons and stuff. And um, you get a good reverse engineer team on that. They could probably make that work without too many hiccups. But they also listed a Speedlight 680EXRT as a counterfeit item. <laughs> and I, I poured over these two things and I couldn't find anything aside from on the label. The serial number was not printed centered right. in the box. <laughs> um, and if you look really carefully around the um, the rubber grip, the, the little locking mechanism, there's some slight differences there. But who's to say which one is right or wrong? Exactly. Um, and But... That actually begged a question because I've used a lot of third-party flashes from Chinese manufacturers. That the Young Newell flashes come to mind, and they're Go really Ducks. good. Go uh, excellent. And and so I'm thinking, if if it's one of these manufacturers, I mean not them specifically, but a, a, a Chinese manufacturer that is typically the ones that are going to be doing these knockoffs, and it's just as good. I mean, is there a point where you say, you know what, the counterfeit product? Uh, is a better deal if you can get it at a better price than the real thing. I, I'm not sure where I come down on that because I've used some young new flashes and they are, I don't want to say ripoffs of the Canon versions, but they try to emulate the functionality as closely sure. as possible. Uh, with the exception of, you know, the young new ring flash, the YN 14 EX two, um, 
which actually goes sort of a step beyond and, and it has little diffuser uh, magnetic attachments that go over uh, the, the flash tubes and you could put them on different colors and things like that. The Canon version doesn't have that and it comes in at a cheaper price. So that's not to say you need to have a Canon 680EX-RT, but if you are going to pay top full dollar for it, you might as well be sure that you're getting the right thing. But by looking at this, I would have a hard time identifying what that is just by physically, even holding the product, it might be difficult. There might be a weight difference. It's impossible to say. Um, but just choose your retailers carefully. You know, yeah. Make sure that it is through a B&H or an Adorama in the US or Hunt's Photo. Uh, or in Canada, we've got VizTech or the Camera Store, which is a smaller operation, but they've got close connections with all the first party uh, sellers. And so, you know, if I was in Canada and I wanted to make sure I was getting a good battery, I'd go to the camera store or VizTech or Henry's or, you know, whatever is closest to you. Uh, and, uh, and, and make sure that you don't buy, um, first party consumables, whether that be ink or batteries, or I, I don't want to think of flash as consumable. So that's the exception to the rule here, but, uh, try, try to get a more authorized source. Of, I think that's uh, the difference between, counterfeit and just third party third party stuff can be great um, oh yeah like you uh, know godox young new uh, yeah yeah th that stuff yeah. can be excellent even lenses those a lot of them are fabulous the counterfeit though is something claiming to be canon and it's not or first party yeah and that's where the problem really lies because uh, they're usually not even trying to make a fully functional item <laughs> they're just trying to to uh hoodwink you into buying it thinking you got the canon thing and they really don't care whether oh, and it then, works or... And then you take it uh, to the Canon support. You, you call <laughs> yeah. them up on the phone and say, Canon, your flash isn't working. And it's like, okay, can you tell me your serial number? And you tell them like the, the first four or five digits and they say, I'm going to stop you there. Because yep. our serial numbers don't start with those numbers. Uh, this is not a real flash. Uh, right. You've been Sorry. duped. And been so duped. we can't support you. <laughs> yeah. So you just paid full, full Canon price for a non-Canon thing and it doesn't even work. Well, yeah. and at that point, you know, hopefully if you bought it from a reputable enough retailer, you'd be able to return sure. it. Sure. And there's uh, an advantage of Amazon. If you can find it quickly, then you, you send it back. And Amazon is pretty good at at taking that care of that, as long as it's not a, a one of the personal re, you know uh, sellers in the marketplace. If it actually is an Amazon seller, um, then then that they're pretty good at it. So. Yeah, especially, you know, if it's fulfilled by Prime or Amazon yeah, yeah. in general. Right, right, but, right. Uh, I mean, I, I listed my, uh, my my new book on Amazon, but I'm I'm the seller. So I don't actually want people to buy it. I mean, the Kindle edition, go for it. But the, the physical edition, if anybody places an order on Amazon for the hardcover edition of my book, Amazon sends me an email with your information and I print out the shipping label and I send it. Uh, and so Amazon just gets a cut out of that, that, uh, -huh. uh you know, I would rather not pay, but, uh, I, I digress. Uh, Amazon is a good thing, especially for the consumer support of, uh, of refunds. Right. right. Um, you know, I had bought my daughter a, uh, Sega Genesis mini for Christmas and, uh, it broke after about 48 hours, uh, and was just completely unresponsive. And all I had to do was say, oh, well, let's just return this. It's broken. All you have to say, you don't pay to ship it back. They just give you the shipping label. So long as it's back and within 30 days in any condition, they give you a refund. And so, um, 
just be aware of that, uh, everybody, and and use this website as. And I'm sure Canon's not the only one that right. has their stuff counterfeited. Uh, yeah, any big manufacturer, you name them, uh, Nikon, Sony, Fuji, Panasonic. I'm sure that there are counterfeiters out there under every banner, uh, wherever the money is to be made. So before we leave this topic, what do you think about their, they're trying to be proactive here. And I don't know when it started. I, I noticed it on the most recent equipment I bought and I didn't the year prior, probably 12 months ago uh, with the hologram stickers that they're putting on the product labels or it, with the product and even on the product. So not in the packaging and on the product itself. I bought a battery a little while ago and it has the that on this that holographic sticker on the battery and it did on the packaging too and the <laughs> microsite made a big deal out of that saying they think that that is something that is significantly harder for a counterfeiter to replicate what do you think don no it's not significantly harder <laughs> holography has existed for a very very long period of time and if you want to uh, order uh, a million Canon logos from somebody that makes holograms, your cost to do so will be less than a penny a product if you're doing so in volume. So no, I, I don't think that that's a huge, right. uh, um, yes, it's an extra step. Right. Uh, and, and I don't know if every counterfeiter is going to do it, but if they had to, to pass muster, they would. Uh, it's not like, I remember way back uh, when I was admiring, I don't even know why I had it in my hands, but my mom's visa card when I was a child. And it had the little hologram right, on the back. Right. And I was just enthused by that. Uh, just bending it back and forth across the light. Uh, you know, small, simple things can amuse a child very easily. But uh, that was... Dec many decades ago, you know, that, that technology has gotten much, much more accessible um, as, as time has moved on. So I think the barrier to entry needs to move up a little bit. I don't know exactly what that's going to be. Um, what, what I would suggest is if you wanted to really do it, you'll have to put in the expense, but you would have to make the serial number on the product a hologram. And if you can do that, then the counterfeiter is not going to follow suit because they would have to do one-offs of every single one. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and that might be a little bit more difficult. Or maybe the counterfeiters would just give up and give every product the same serial number. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> and then how are you going to... No, so I think it's a cat and mouse game. It I'm is. not sure exactly how we're going to um, get through that. But it it is something to be aware of. And I first noticed it um, with the LPE6 battery, which debuted with the Canon 5D Mark II. And that was in 2008. Oh, okay. So it's not brand uh, new. It's not new. Uh, and uh, that was a big deal because, again, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's Canon's fault. I don't want to blame the victim here. But when you charge so much for a battery, the third-party market is going to come in with a cheaper product. Uh, and it's okay that they do that, but the counterfeiters also come in for the same reason. Right. So, yeah. Um, Anyhow, uh, be aware of that, everybody. Your gear may be counterfeit, uh, and you might not know it. Check it out. Make sure that you are on the up and up. The next story is, uh, I mean, I, I almost didn't want to cover it, but it was kind of a slow news week, and it's kind of niche and neat and interesting. <laughs> um, so an article I found on Cosmophoto, which is um, a, a website, or a company, by the way, that, that makes film, and I recently backed their Kickstarter campaign for the 400-speed uh, Agent Shadow black and white film. I have yet to receive my, uh, my perk for that pledge, but uh, they've been on my radar. 
and they did a blog post titled new film brand no color studio launches with iso 5 film that has an iso rating of 5 not 50 not 15 or anything but 5 so this i thought was kind of neat because i i've mused on this podcast before that I love the concept of film and I buy film and that it just sits in a drawer in my freezer. And, <laughs> um, and I might obtain some of this for, you know, said future uh, languish in, in my freezer. But I didn't know that any ISO 5 film was in production. Uh, for example, the uh, Agent Shadow film is actually a different emulsion from a different purpose that is being rebranded for still photography under that name. And that's not a new thing. Uh, 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 what is it? Uh, Cinestill uh, takes cinematic film and repackages it for uh, 35 millimeter still cameras. And they've been doing great business over the past couple of years that they've been around. But I don't know of for any purpose, uh, an ISO 5 film that would have existed. Um, so this might be a new emulsion. I'm not sure. Uh, when was the last time, Jeff, that you shot film, if you ever have? And what's the slowest speed film that you've ever used? Yeah, so I I got into photography uh, well after digital became uh, really kind of the, the standard and default. So I, I haven't done it in any kind of professional capacity. Uh, so my my film experience goes back to like, you know, a young kid. I, I remember getting a camera. It, I don't remember the model now, but it was it looks sort of like our our USB power bricks that we use to charge our devices. Now, it was that thin, long kind of shape and, and a square. <laughs> and, Possibly and, uh, an Olympus camera. Did it have yeah. a little shield that opened? And, no, and closed no, no. no, it was just just this re- that rectangular shape. Uh, had a flash built onto one side at the front and then just a single button. Uh, anyway, that you know, messed around with those. We got those for Christmas one year and and I played around with them. So the slowest would have been 100 was a pretty standard kind of thing. And But I, I didn't do a ton with it uh, to be able to, to really talk too much about this. The, I do have a question, though, since mm-hmm. I don't have a huge background in film. Tell me what this means. This, this came from the, the article. It said... The film is coated with some old school Kodak emulsion. Back in the day before the boom of digital photography, Kodak was pretty much everywhere. I can't say much about where it came from. What is that? Is there like buckets of storage containers or something that has like ancient Kodak emulsion that they're using as they create this product? Or what, what is this? Maybe, or the chemical formula was close enough to replicate to something else. Gotcha. Um, but if it's patent encumbered, you might not want to reveal your source. Uh-huh. Um, so, and, and who knows how, uh, you know, when those patents expire or um, I, I'm not familiar with, I know Kodak for the longest time had so many specialty emulsions for uh, industrial use, scientific use, and, uh, you know, for astrophotography films and for, you know, a variety of infrared films and so many other things. So it could have been one of those special use cases and they just had leftover chemicals and sometimes chemicals expire, but I guess some formulas are stable enough in a stable environment that it might still be old stock of the chemicals to actually manufacture the film. So does that mean this might be more of a limited run of building, of creating this new film? Possibly. Uh, But but again, we, you don't know the source. So you don't know if it's, uh, they said right there, they can't say much about it. (laughs) Right. So, uh, but, but at that point, um, 
I've used ISO 25 film before. Okay. And you basically have to be on a tripod and, oh, uh, sure. and really think methodically about, about what you're shooting. But the, the grain quality was very, very good. Uh, you know, the, the highest resolution uh, film images that I had taken. I don't know if it's going to get necessarily much better at ISO 5 uh, c- comparative to uh, 25. But it does bear in mind some interesting uh, ideas that you could play around with. In the digital space, you, you're you pretty much limited to whatever the uh, base ISO of your camera is, anywhere from ISO 64 to 200, uh, based, you know, depending on your camera model. Right. And you might be able to cut that in half uh, in the L mode, uh, but all it's doing is taking the base ISO and putting uh, you know, a curve, an adjustment curve on that to make it look right. darker. Right. So you can't really get lower in the sense that if you wanted to have a very slow shutter speed, you would have to have a much longer exposure uh, by putting neutral density filters on the front of it. And in the digital world, that introduces long exposure noise. And then you can go ahead and you can cancel that out, uh, you know, by taking multiple exposures and dark frames. And there's a process in order to help right. alleviate those problems. But in film, you wouldn't have that same issue. Uh, you would have to deal with reciprocity failure and who knows exactly what that's going to be. And it, you're not uh, a film guy, Jeff. So basically what that means is uh, if you have, uh, and I'm oversimplifying, but if you have the film exposed for uh, a lengthy period of time, it gets less sensitive to light over the next same period of time and so on and so forth. Okay, uh, right. And so you can, you, you have to calculate that into your overall exposure to ensure that, yeah, you know, in digital, it's all pretty well buttoned down. If you've got a, a 10 second exposure at, you know, F4, it will equal the exact same thing if you go to F5.6 at a 20 second exposure. But the same is not true of film. Uh, you've got to do a little bit more math behind the scenes to figure that out. And that's, um, it's, I guess, part of a bygone era. I, I want to know more about this. Uh, and I, I don't really know what I'll do with it. I was thinking, actually... <laughs> It might be a useful emulsion, depending on the characteristics, uh, to put in a, a pinhole camera and do a solography type of thing, uh, where you know people do like six month long exposures of uh, of the sky and all the the traces of the sun moving right, around. Right. Uh, it immediately came to mind that that would be a pretty cool use case because right now the common technology to do that is just to put some actual photosensitive paper in uh in like a soup can and uh and it will expose over time and then you scan it but as soon as it's exposed to light you're erasing the image uh to a, you know regular light so you get to scan it once and if your scanner is set to the wrong setting and it has to pause at any point then your image is destroyed as a result so um yeah, I, I think this might be a, a, an interesting uh, exploratory. It looks like it's only available in 35 millimeter. Uh, it'd be really cool if it could be made in bigger formats because I have a four by five pinhole camera that I would love to throw some of this stuff in and see what I could create as a result. So the film industry continues with ISO 5 film. If you want to do those sweeping, uh, beautiful clouds blurring in the sky uh and crazy blurred waterfall landscape scenery in black and white film you can do that and you can do that without the need of nd filters uh if you can get your hand on some of this film uh would actually be kind of neat to see that surrealness um in 3d 
you know, I experiment a lot in 3D photography and um, I've got some 35 millimeter 3D cameras that uh, I, I, I might throw that in and experiment a little bit. Lots uh, of actually, mad scientists to work there. Yeah, well, you know, I, I have fun. Yeah. Uh, you got to have fun where you can. <laughs> uh, speaking of 3D, though, I just I had a, a client um, this past week. A uh, customer just called me up out of the blue. Uh, never talked to the person before. They were a new customer. Uh, older man uh, that wanted me to uh, scan a, um, a stereo 3D slide that he had because it was a wedding photo. Uh, and he didn't need it in stereo. He just needed a, a, a 2D image, but the highest possible quality. And I've built somewhere around my desk I was using it the other day, a, uh, a film scanner attachment for my camera. So I, I used that and I did it and I made him a, he was only asking for an eight, eight by six print. Uh, so uh, bang that off, got two of them out. But there was room left on the roll of paper because I was printing on a 24 inch roll of paper. And so in the extra space, rather than wasting it, I figured, you know, let's just, it, it's going to be purely for my own time at this point. There's no extra expense. But I scanned the other uh, image, so I had the stereo pair, and I processed them as an anaglyph to, uh, to, to wear the red-blue glasses uh, to see it in, in 3D, and uh, made them a print of that too. And so that's going out to that customer uh, on Monday, and they don't know that I'm putting that little Easter egg uh, <laughs> in, cool. in the envelope. So they'll open it up and they'll see the 3D glasses and the 3D image. And um, again, it cost me an extra five to 10 minutes worth of my time, but I actually had fun processing it to see it in 3D as well. Um, I like doing those little things once in a while. Yeah, very cool. It was Kodachrome too, though. It was Kodachrome 64, the film. And if anybody's ever dealt with scanning and, uh, you know, uh, digitizing Kodachrome, it is beautiful. It handles so well. The resolution is amazing. The colors hold up over time incredibly well. It requires, I mean, it's a positive film, so there's generally not going to be a color cast, but there's like virtually no color correction required on it at all. So, um, yeah, I, I miss the days of Kodachrome. I never got to shoot a roll of the stuff, uh, mm. but I see all of these film examples and it makes me nostalgic. It may never come back. Um, just like story number three, photographer loses all gear and work to apartment fire. Uh, this is reported on Petapixel. And this sucks. I just got to say right from the beginning that whenever somebody loses their images or their equipment in any way, I mean, you got to feel bad. Um, the article re reads, a Slovak photographer is appealing for help to get back on his feet after a devastating apartment fire wiped out his studio, camera equipment, and 25 years worth of photography. Um, you carry on from here, Jeff. What, uh, what's the, the details of this story and, and what does it really mean to you? So, yeah, it, it's really sad. The, the he, It's interesting he was able to take some positives away from it. In the story at the end, he, he does say, like, I'm just glad nobody got hurt. Like, there wasn't me or my dog or my cat or any of my family or friends in the apartment when it burned thoroughly. And there was nothing left. This It was, uh, there's, there's images in the article if anyone wants to go check it out. That was a pretty impressive uh, burn. There's, you know, often there's there's a lot of damage that is done by fires, but there's usually 
some things that could be salvaged in some fashion. There's nothing coming out of this. this no, was... no, there, there is, there is a bathroom floor mat. Okay. It, look, it looks kind of untouched, maybe a little charred in one corner, but uh, it might be salvageable. And then there's uh, some very sad images of the poor camera equipment that are, are just burned beyond recognition. They're melted uh, in, in insane ways. Um, something that of course it, there's, absolutely zero chance uh, beyond zero <laughs> that these things could be used with the damage that was done to them. So yeah, he was, he was trying to get a little help uh, to, to get back on his feet. And I, like you, you, you had in the notes here, like why would someone allow their entire life? He's been a professional photographer for a, a long time and put you, why would he allow himself to be put in this position? It is horrible. Of course, nobody wants a disaster like this to happen. We don't plan for them, but that's exactly what insurance is for, is for the yeah, things I have that insurance. we don't plan. And uh, my insurance, I just recently had to renew my insurance because the scope of your business changes over time. Um, the value of your equipment, whether it's the stuff you take on the road or the stuff that's in your studio, uh, you got to make sure you've got enough coverage for all of that and that you document exactly what it is that you own. That might mean periodically just laying out all of your gear and taking a picture of it with a timestamp on it um, so that uh, when it comes time to claim an, an insurance claim, you, you've got evidence of what would have been destroyed in a fire or it, you know, stolen in, uh, in a theft incident or something like that. Any professional should have some level of insurance. I'm not saying that you've got to spend uh, oodles of money on it, but at least something. Uh, make I sure agree. that the, your, uh, your replacement cost of your day-to-day -day gear so that you don't lose a lot of business is covered. Or I, I've got additional coverages like um, uh, business interruption insurance, right? So if I do uh, have gear that's stolen, the time that I am without it uh, or the time that I don't have access to my data because I've got to pull it all down from the cloud because of something, uh, the insurance covers my time that I cannot be productive within my business, uh, and, and so, yeah, th there's different levels of insurance and he didn't have it. And so now he's, uh, backup instead of insurance is a GoFundMe campaign, which, okay. I'm glad that that technology does exist, that we have the ability for somebody to put out a plea. Um, right, right. and, uh, and now he's just under, uh, 2000 Euro that has been pledged to him to help, uh, back things up. And, you know, I, I shouldn't say. Uh, this guy's in Slovakia, I think. I, I don't know what the insurance industry in Slovakia is like. Maybe, sure. maybe it's prohibitively expensive to to get uh, the proper insurance. Um, but, you know, w without getting too political, I also hate when I see people putting up a GoFundMe campaign to pay for their medical bills um, because they just didn't have the proper insurance, whether they could afford it or not. You know, insurance is denied for so many different reasons. Um, and it just it's makes me feel really sad for people that have to go there. And yes, I have contributed money to, you know, campaigns like that before. I'm hesitant to do so in a campaign like this because I just feel like there should have been the option of some level of insurance that would cover a fire gutting everything that you owned in your, in your profession. When um, you're a small business owner, you have to do that. Like there's it that you just have to, you are relying on that to provide your income and you can't risk that all being taken away from a disaster like this. So that that's the whole definition of insurance, <laughs> be able to cover this kind of scenario. And you gotta, you have to do that to protect yourself, your family. Uh, a different insurance uh, item might be a safe. 
sure. that uh, that is fireproof uh, and and rated appropriately. So I remember seeing uh, Joseph Lanashki, aka Photo Joseph, and Steve Brazel discussing that on Twitter recently right. um, when Joseph was looking to to buy a safe. And they were going back and forth about what the different ratings mean and, and why they might not state certain things being suspect and so on. And I don't recall seeing the end of that conversation, actually. So I got to follow up with them to see what that is. But um, I, I've got half a mind to get a, uh, a a large enough safe to put all the gear that I don't use on a regular basis in, uh, including all of my media. Uh, like backup hard drives and things like that. Or, uh, you know, I've got a lot of lenses and some of them I take out for very special purposes and uh, they might be very hard to replace. <laughs> right. uh, you know, <laughs> some of them were were almost custom made uh, for me or custom modified in a sense. And so there's a certain intangible value associated with that. And I'd rather, you know, if fire engulfs uh, my home and, and my, my hearts go to the people uh, in wildfire zones uh, across the world right now where, you know, the, the, their worldly possessions can go up in flames, uh, you know, in a day. And you really don't have a whole lot of time to prepare and plan for that. I, I would suggest possibly a, a fire safe as big enough to keep all of your valuables, your documents, your data. Um, and if you're so inclined, slightly bigger to keep your other less commonly used camera gear and uh, just you know keep things safe as the world continues to evolve in not necessarily the best possible ways. If I recall correctly, Steve and Joseph were, uh, the whole reason for their conversation was uh, Joseph was looking to back up or put his, uh, his hard drives back yeah. up hard drives into the safe. So yeah, I was, I had never looked at that either. So I, I really appreciated their conversation too, because I learned a little bit about what to look for, having never looked into it myself to see what it is. And and they they did have a rating like you, I'd have to go back to look in, in Twitter to see what it was they came to. But uh, I knew what the mental note I took was, I need to talk to Steve about this. <laughs> Cause, <laughs> exactly. Because he has done the research. He knows already what to look for and uh, how to figure out if the safe is actually going to be fireproof or not, which is what the back and forth was all about. Yeah. And I think it, it's all about um, the, the temperatures, uh, the internal temperatures over a period of time. Right. Uh, so that those hard drives will still be safe. Yeah. E- exactly. Because, yeah. you know, a, a document, so long as it doesn't reach the, uh, what is the, the point of like spontaneous combustion, combustion yeah. like uh, the, the flash point, I think that's what it would be called. Mm, I'm be. not sure. Um, so, I mean, for documents, so long as you're below that, you should be fine. But that that same temperature could also completely destroy a hard drive. Right. Right. So, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, do your, uh, do, do your best to do your research on that. Just like I, I would not want Jeff to end up buying a counterfeit safe. Um, <laughs> all right. There you go. Yeah. Wrapping it all up. <laughs> yes. That, that would be awful. Uh, yes. if push came to shove and you realized, Hey, I w- this was supposed to be rated at this, but they just, yeah, uh, they lied about those ratings. And, uh, <laughs> right. Now I have a puddle of a hard drive. So, yeah. All right, let's go on to uh, to the next story here. This one, eh, this bothers me because as as good as as I try to be as a business person in the photographic space, um, there's bad actors out there. But there's bad actors in every industry. Right. right. It's, it's, you know, uh, there are absolutely wonder, wonderful, 100 percent honest mechanics. 
uh, and there are not. The same true of anybody in any trade or even in academia. Um, you know, I follow uh, Elizabeth Bick on Twitter that has a mind for finding repeating patterns in scientifically published papers where oh, people wow. are faking their results. Um, and I, I, I hate to see it, but I love to know that that stuff is being discovered uh, right, in, right. in that sense. But Back to the, the story here from Petapixel. A judge orders photographer to pay $22,000 for failing to deliver wedding. I'm assuming that they mean wedding photos, not that he was... Uh, <laughs> the ceremony or something. Yeah, yeah he, he was not the, uh, the person presiding over the ceremony. But a judge has ordered a wedding photographer uh, who failed to provide the photos and videos to his clients for six years to pay a couple... $22,000 chastising him for, quote, deceitful behavior and unsavory business practices. Uh, this was originally reported in the Vancouver Sun. So that's uh, uh, sort of up here in Canada, albeit 6,000 kilometers away from me. Canada's a big place, but um, Kaman and Ramandeep Rai, uh, a couple from Surrey, BC, uh, originally hired photographer Aman Ball to take photos and videos of their wedding in 2015. Ball, who has operated as a photographer for nearly 20 years and who has also shot music videos and fashion shows in addition to weddings, claimed he withheld final products from the couple because they did not complete the final payment of $3,500. I'm going to keep reading here a bit, and we're going to uh, discuss because I think we need to have all the specifics before we can kind of pull Agreed. it apart. Yep. Uh, Judge um, Valia Mai uh, uh, Chetiar, uh, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, uh, disagreed and cited the five times Ball had been sued in civil court between 2011 and 2019, saying that he showed a, quote, pattern of deceitful behavior that frustrates innocent people to the extent that they just give up, end quote, and stop pursuing him. Quote, there is no shred of evidence to support this assertion, uh, said Chetier, referring to that the couple didn't pay uh, uh, the amount. Uh, with regard to Baal's claim that the couple did, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and then reading what I'm paraphrasing. I apologize. <laughs> right. um, he appeared to be making up answers on the spur of the moment. Uh, she then called him uh, an unreliable witness and rejected his evidence, which is, I mean, that's a big thing, right? If you call the defendant an unreliable witness and reject all the evidence that they are about to present to you, that is bold. Yeah. Um, and it's so bold, actually, that it would probably give uh, Aman Ball uh, the the reason to appeal the decision because that that's so, so crazy there. But um, the couple said that they had sent uh, repeated texts to him for the first two and a half years requesting the completed photos and videos and were given repeated assurances that the delivery was coming. Initially, he represented himself as elite images but told the couple in 2018 that he no longer worked there and said that the images and video were being worked on by somebody else, but he was unable to say who that would be or what company they worked for. He was also unable to tell them where their photos or videos were. Judge Chetiar uh, said that it was clear that Ball purposely made his contracts confusing. Ball deliberately used different names in his dealings with the Rays, uh, 
creating confusion and possibly a path for him to escape liability if necessary by obscuring the true identity of the contracting party, she ruled. The court must denunciate such behavior and deter Mr. Ball from further victimizing others from his unsavory business practices, she continued. Uh, clearly upset uh, at the defendant as she used language that is normally reserved for criminal trials in this civil case, which, uh, I don't know, it gives me a warm and fuzzy feeling inside. Um, (laughs) The court awarded Kaman and Ramandeep Rai $7,000 for the cost it would take to turn the raw photos and videos into albums and other finished products, another $10,000 for mental distress. Ball was also ordered to pay $5,000 in punitive damages. Uh, That's the slap on the wrist money, you know, shame on you, Uh, for a total of $22,000 in penalties for the photographer. Uh, In determining the fees, Judge Chetiar cited the delay, mental distress, missed opportunities to share the wedding memories and the lack of peace the couple suffered as a result, uh, you know, as well as the legal fees that were necessary to bring the matter to court, which I'm sure were not small right. either. So that's that's the article. Uh, let, let's discuss. W- what are your thoughts on on this? Because clearly from the get go, this guy was was dirt. Yeah. So it makes me so sad to see articles like this. There are enough challenges in our space to face uh, with, you know, inexpensive cameras being super capable um, and, and uh, phones being so capable. We, we have enough challenges already just to convince people like, yeah, you still need a wedding photographer today. And we're that the, the cost of that wedding photographer should be something that's actually compensatory to the work. Uh, it, it's hard to do this. And then you, you see things like this and, and on the other side of it now, I can, I can understand how a, a couple who's about to be married and, and they know they, they actually want to make that decision. Like we want good photos. So we're going to hire someone who knows what they're doing. And they, they when they see something like this, that makes them like, well, but how do we even know we're going to end up with someone that knows what they're doing? You can't judge it by the work they present necessarily because people can lie about that pretty easily. Um, there's so many issues here. And, it, you know, you hope that they'll go and, and meet with that photographer ahead of time. Um, though planning and getting ready for a wedding is so time consuming. That can be challenging. I feel really, really bad for them. And I, I hate the stain that these kinds of stories make on on our genre and, and the, the photography industry as a whole. Like you, Don, I'm, I'm convinced most people are still good, kind, decent people. I, I think they far outnumber those that are these bad actors. Unfortunately, there are the bad actors, though. And, and how is a, a person supposed to be able to decipher or pick out of the crowd who is the bad ones versus the good ones when this isn't a, a thing you know a lot about. It's sort of like, uh, you know, it's, I, I built a house here several years ago. have no idea. I've never worked in the construction industry. I don't, I know nothing about building houses and I learned a lot along the way because I had to, and we had a lot of negative experiences of people who didn't do their job right. And, but I, I didn't know ahead of time, there was no way I could as someone who doesn't know the industry go into that situation and be like, well, your plan is wrong or, or come and even look at the work as they're doing it and saying, you're doing that wrong. I don't know what it's supposed to look like or how it's supposed to be done. 
And so it, I, I really feel for the couple. And but more than that, I, I feel really bad about how is cast such a shadow on photography. And, uh, and it, it's it's a shame all the way around. The, the only people that won in this are the, the lawyers. That's it. <laughs> yeah, really. Because I mean, the the couple just wanted their wedding photos. That's right. all they wanted. And uh, I, I don't even know if they're going to be able to get the raw files to to be processed. Who knows if um, the defendant actually still has them, uh, based on the comments that were given. But I, I would think that there's a number of things you could do here to protect yourself. And by thinking like a consumer, uh, like a, a potential client, you could also, you know, as a business owner, try to um, alleviate any concerns that they might have. Sure. One of them uh, is the contracts were confusing, right? Like if I were to put a contract out there for somebody, I would want it as clear and as simple as possible while still having all the legal uh substance that is required in order to make sure that it's fair for all parties. And if there's anything confusing about a contract uh, or an insurance policy, like I said, I recently had mine redone. I I came up with a whole bunch of questions uh, to the insurance broker about what is covered, when and how, edge cases, etc. And I, I did the same thing when we were getting our home insurance. And I remember there being some specific clauses in there where you know if somebody uh, if somebody does damage to your property, then uh, then that's uh, that's covered by the insurance. But if somebody damages your vehicle or steals your vehicle uh, or uses your own property to damage your own property, then that's not covered. And I was thinking, well, what if somebody breaks into my car, steals my car, and drives it through my uh, my garage door? My insurance policy then wouldn't cover that because it's my property damaging my own property, right? Uh, and so I got them to clarify the policy to that end. And I, I mean, I've got a paper trail in the emails. At least I've got a <laughs> right, reference right. of that. Um, but uh, you know, not everybody's going to read to the to the fine degree, and not everybody should have to make things plain and simple um, as much as you can. But also, if you're going to hire a photographer that puts out a portfolio of work, uh, and you might trust them. Um, but just trust, but verify. Uh, (laughs) so take, take one of the images from a couple of different shoots and throw them into a Google image, reverse image search, uh, and see where else they show up online. Just to make sure that that photographer did actually take those photos and they're not padding their portfolio with work from other photographers. Um, and one third uh, thing that I would do uh, and, and this is helpful for photographers too. Like if you're if, if you're actually putting images in your portfolio that you legitimately took, put them in the reverse image <laughs> right. search to see if anybody is stealing your work too, right? <laughs> because that 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 goes both ways. Um, but uh, third party review websites, which you know I've got a mixed feeling about, but one where the owner of the business cannot control the content right? They cannot delete a bad review. Um, so like, don't pay attention to reviews on their own website, for example. Uh, if there is uh, Google or Yelp or some other service where you can hear about negative commentary uh, and don't just dismiss uh, somebody because there's one negative review. I'm sure everybody's right, got right. one negative review somewhere. Um, but if they pass muster except for that negative review, bring it up to them. Uh, and see how they talk about their former client that wrote the negative review. And if they're scathing and vitriolic over that client, don't hire them. 
because if they have such a bad attitude towards a client facing other clients, I mean, it doesn't matter what they feel inside. It matters what they say. Uh, and if they're willing to be unprofessional in their commentary about somebody that was unprofessional on them, they fight fire with fire in the worst possible way. And I would not hire them either. So, um, that's, that's my advice, uh, to, and again, that goes both directions. If you are, uh, if you're the professional and you've got the client that's asking you this stuff, I mean, be the best you can be, right. uh, make sure that you are diligent about protecting your work, that nobody is putting them in their portfolios, which protects, protects your legitimacy and just be as polite as possible to your clients. Even if they are total, just, I, I don't. I'm not going to say the words I'm thinking right now in my mind on this podcast. We'll, we'll get Keep a professional Don. We'll get a different rating, but yeah, keep it professional. So there you go. Uh, judge orders a 22,000. Now the thing is $22,000. This guy's ordered to pay it. That couple now has to get that money from oh, that yeah. guy. And that, that's an entirely different battle. And I mean, pay the lawyers. And yeah, the overhead it took to get here. And they, they still may never get their images. Like, they, they, it just may never happen. Yeah. And, and they, I mean, I'm not going to say this. I'm sure they're beautiful people. But everybody ages. And it's six years on. They're oh, not yeah. going to look as young if they have to reshoot photos no. now than when they were actually married. I know I have aged. And I have been married for about six years. So... Um, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate all around. So to me, what, what I wish they would have had in the, in the final settlement here, I wish they would, the judge would have said, and you are forced to turn over the photos, whatever they, you know, unprocessed if it needs be so that they can get their photos out of this deal. Like you, you have to produce those, um, which he may not be able to, cause he, they may be gone, <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, so it's such a, a and tragedy. next he'll be claiming that they were burned up in a fire. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't have the fire safe. It was a counterfeit. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love how we can wrap those stories all together before we get to our picks of the week. But before we get to those picks, uh, Jeff, where can people find you online on social media, your podcasts, anything you'd like to promote about yourself? Yeah, I'd have people go over to phototacopodcast.com. That's where I have, you know, all of the main stuff. That's where this tool I've been talking about and how I'm going to be testing out Lightroom uh, is, is all of that information is going to be there. But there's uh, all kinds of, of articles and f podcasts I've done on various technical topics related to photography. But if you've got a technical question about photography, there's a good chance I've already written a pot or written a, a blog post and created a, a podcast on the topic. So. And I want to give a shout out to your your time investment on some of these episodes because, like you're like you're doing now, um, you've done so in the past. So you you've got a, a track record of really wasting your time. Um, I mean, for our benefit, but I have no idea why you continue to do this to yourself. Uh, <laughs> but in the past, I've seen some really great in-depth uh, sort of investigative journalism of, of sorts, you know, into the best possible options for different things and overanalyzing everything to a degree that I would never have done myself. Um, so make sure you go, if you're ever curious, if you're on the fence about deciding what hardware to buy, what software to use for whatever reason, Jeff may have covered uh, what you are looking at with a far greater depth and attention to detail than than you're going to do just by browsing a bunch of meta resources online and Google searches. So right. uh, you, you've done good. And uh, I'm glad 
uh, sort of like I said at the beginning, that there are people out there such as yourself that are willing to put in that legwork. Yeah, well, you, your uh, scientific mind gets applied to a lot of various lenses and, and photo situations. Mine goes to the technology behind them. <laughs> That's how go. I go. That's awesome. So uh, well, let's get into our picks. Um, you're, you're the guest, uh, Jeff. Why, why don't you go first on this one? Uh, and I've got some questions about your pick that I pulled up uh, just before the show here. Okay, so one of the things that's motivated me to dive into this rabbit hole uh, for this testing thing is the M1 Mac. Um, because, you know, the early reviews, there were lots of people that, of course, jumped to trying to run Lightroom and Photoshop and let's do some testing. And I, I have some really good friends over. Another, there's a, a company that does some great work in this area called Puget Systems. They're fabulous. Their they're computers they build are great and their testing that they've got are, is really uh, the best I have found so far, but falls short of what I want to be able to test. So, for example, their tests only work on Windows. It doesn't work on Mac. So, um, so th- that's a challenge. And I, well, I, to be fair, they only sell Windows machines. That's true. So. It's true. But their their tests and and the reason their tests only work on Windows is it's a whole different ball game trying to do the same approach on Mac. I've already worked with them a lot on this and and yeah the, there's the the platform that they chose to be able to build the tests works great for windows does not work for mac so anyway the the, the point is m1 max came out a whole bunch of people bought them a whole bunch of people are like wow these are so fast and they the testing that they've done to say they're fast was very superficial um but that's why i went down that hole but in the, so I, I bought myself an m1 mac because i want to be able to do this and that was one of the things i really really want to test it's not a toy. It's a business tool, right? It is a business tool. Yes. <laughs> and um, I, I hook my computers up to a KVM switch, so a keyboard, video, mouse switch, so that I can share my monitor, my keyboard, my mouse across my machines. I'm sitting here right now recording this. I have three of them in front of me and uh, testing across all kinds of things all the time. So being able to do that, and then with the M1, with the Macs for several years, they've only had a couple of USB-C ports, uh, really. And, and so you have to have like dongles to get them connected, and, and it can be kind of a pain. And I tried a lot of different docks uh, so that I can get my keyboard, mouse, everything hooked up that I need, SD card readers, stuff like that, uh, to the M1 Mac. And the video piece in particular, I found to be very troublesome through the docs that I already had. They didn't work well. In particular, they didn't wake monitors when they were coming out of sleep. You had to disconnect the, the dock and reconnect it before it would work, which is just annoying. So I had to pause my, my work on the tool long enough to go and research what dock. There's got to be something out there that works. And uh, OWC is is, a, is very famous for working very well with Apple products in particular. Uh, the, a lot of the stuff is is uh, going to work very well across PC as well. But they they really make sure it works with Macs. And so I, I thought I would go there first uh, to check it out. And they actually had uh, many versions of Docs. There's lots of them they have available. But they but they had a newer one that they called the uh, the Thunderbolt Dock for M1 and Intel Max Thunderbolt 4, which right in the name tells me. Okay, this it, thing it's probably going to work for should you work. because it's made for what you're yes, using, right? It should work. Um, but it was $280. I'm like, oh gosh, do I want to solve this problem of not having to disconnect the dock uh, to get the display to come back awake for $280? So I didn't go to the OWC one first. I went with a few other lesser known brands 
None of them worked. I, I went through probably 10 of them, but what much, much less expensive. They were like $20 a piece or so, you know, and, and you get what you pay for. So I've done the same thing. They don't work. (laughs) So I decided uh, this really is a big deal in my productivity. I need to be able to switch between these machines without it being a problem. And I I can't unplug and replug it in every time. That's just not going to work. So I buckled down and bought the device and sure enough, it works beautifully. It there's no problems at all. I've now connected storage to it. I've every kind of uh, kind of photographer need for connecting their devices to an M1 Mac. It works great. It works with the Intel stuff. Works with my PC. It is a beautiful device. It is very expensive, but it's worth the cost. Now, how long have you been using it? About four months. Okay, so that's a significant period of time. Uh, the reason why I ask is because I've I've bought some uh, USB uh, uh, hubs, uh, you know, for, for lack of a better term. Um, it wouldn't be like a full dock. It's just kind of spreading out USB ports. And uh, uh, they have great reviews, right? And I buy it and it works perfect, exactly as expected for about a week. Uh, and then it just, it, whether your heat starts damaging components or things start getting flaky when a lot of data throughput is going through it, or it just doesn't wake stuff up when the computer wakes up, there's always been some issue. I recently bought, um, a StarTech port, uh, that is designed for server rooms. Like it has a, a weird 12 volt power plug that goes into this thing. And I'm <laughs> yes. figuring this, this looks mission critical. Uh, and so all I needed is for all of my, uh, simple USB peripherals. Like I'm talking to you on a microphone and a webcam and I've got a keyboard and a mouse all plugged in. Like I'm not putting high bandwidth stuff on this, but it just, I don't want it connected to my device. Uh, and I've just got that. I haven't, uh, had the time to, uh, open it up and, and test it out, but something like this, it's got, it's not just, um, USB sharing. It's got an ethernet port. It's got an SD card. Uh, it's got, um, a microphone or a headphone jack. Uh, and a variety of USB uh, A and C ports. The C ports are Thunderbolt, all compatible uh, with displays up to 8K resolution, etc. And it looks pretty darn good. It looks like it's designed to the same specifications as my Surface Dock, uh, which is what my computer is set up to right now. And whenever I plug anything into that, I don't have any issues whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it's sort of a, a third party, but really looks like a first party quality type device with all of the inputs. And if you're saying four months and not a hiccup, uh, worth the uh, 279 that it costs right. to get. Yeah, and uh, I, I want to mention, so the other docs from OWC, I, I already had an OWC Thunderbolt 3 version, just previous needs. I'd already tried it and it failed in the similar way. So something about the M1 Mac and Thunderbolt hmm. 4 that's built into it is different enough that video in particular struggles it has a real problem through the docks through a lot of these other docks so this i was really glad to to find one that actually worked awesome well thank you for that pick and the link to that will be in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com as well as my pick although you'll probably remember it just from the name rather than following a link i realized that i don't think i ever properly uh labeled flicker as a uh, as a pick of the week and um you know credit where credit is due smug mug took over Flickr recently but Flickr has always been uh, a very good photo sharing platform the the resolution is top notch they don't compress the heck out of your images so you've got all the the detail but when you click in on any image you'll see all of the exif data alongside you can put them into uh into your own albums if you so wish you can write at length as much text as you want uh, 
And I hate the fact that uh, I can't write as much at length on Twitter. It's a shorter form uh, platform. I get that. Instagram, they cut me off after about three quarters of a page worth of text. They'll let me get there, but no further, right? And sometimes I'm, I'm actually rewriting my stuff and taking out paragraphs when I have to put stuff on Instagram. Um, but Flickr lets me opine as much as I want about an image, share links that are actually um, hyperlinked within the text as well. Um, and it's just, if you are a photographer out there, and yes, I have a, a pro subscription I have for a decade. Uh, and, and I would encourage you to give some money to a platform. You won't see ads if you do. And so that's a benefit to yourself there. And there's other benefits, unlimited uploads, etc. But just the way that they display work. I've published about you know 10 or so images over the last week and a half. Uh, just having fun doing so. The interaction has been good. My audience isn't as big as it is on other platforms. And so that's probably the reason. And it's more exclusively to just photographers. If I post stuff on Facebook, I have family and friends that will chime in and say that they like the image. And well, that's thank you, uh, aunt so-and-so or grandma or whoever. But um, it's, uh, it, I, I like the, the dialogue and the discussion uh, about uh, photography and Flickr seems to be the place where that's happening. SmugMug, as I mentioned, is the new steward of the platform, and uh, they have they basically kept it pretty well the same and put some polish on it since it was under uh, the Yahoo uh, control in the past. But it still maintains itself as the most rock solid platform for displaying your images in the most highest quality, uh, you know, possible way. So Flickr is my pick of the week. And uh, Jeff, do you have a Flickr account? I do. I do not have the pro version so far, but uh, we I've used the platform even for like photo contests too. So it's it's a really nice way to be able to do that. So Well, and Steve fun. and I do our photo your, critique your show, critique show uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. by having the images uploaded to Flickr because they don't compromise on the quality of the images. And if we want to make sure that we're pulling images down, uh, they're not like horribly compressed and crunched right. as they are on most other platforms so that we can dive into the details if they are so too provided. Uh from the uh, from the people uploading them, because yeah, I mean, you can still upload low resolution stuff. I tend to only upload things to Flickr that's at least three thousand pixels uh, on the uh, on the longest edge, and that means you can fill fill a, fill a screen with it. I, I know a lot of people viewed it on mobile, and that really doesn't matter. But if you are sitting on a desktop, you want to dive into those details. They are there for you to explore because the platform from the ground up allowed you to do that, and that is still maintained today. So. Flickr. If you haven't explored it, please do. And in the show notes at the very bottom where you can find me, you'll also find my uh, my Flickr uh, account and you can see all the new stuff that I've been uploading and uh, interact, check it out and uh, maybe upload some of your own stuff. It's also uh, going back to storing your images in a place that is sort of offsite and won't be engulfed in flames because I'm uploading not the highest resolution images, mind you, but high enough that they could be repurposed for many, many things, I feel like Flickr is also, in one sense, a backup uh, of not the best, highest quality master tip <laughs> right, files right. that I have here, right? <laughs> uh, but if everything else goes to hell, then at least I've got that and I can download the originals from the platform as well that I've uploaded. So Flickr is my pick of the week this week. 
All right, that winds us down. Jeff, thank you for being on this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. It's been fun. I always love talking to you and geeking out about whatever technology you happen to be digging into and sort of, I mean, when you come up for air uh, after this Lightroom <laughs> experiment thing, I'm going to have to have you back on and we can discuss the results of that sure. because I think that would be a lot of fun uh, for our audience to explore as well. And I I'd want to just pick your brain uh, and, and I'll probably come up with questions that you haven't answered and I'm going to send you back down into yep. the rabbit hole. And... <laughs> I kind of expect that. Yeah. <laughs> but thanks for being here, Jeff. Uh, and again, uh, where can people find you? Phototacopodcast.com. That's where everything is linked to, I'm sure, and you'll find the links to that also at photogeekweekly.com. Thank you to everybody who's listened this long to this episode. And now it is time to stay in and shoot. Music.